won't run them over. <laughs> well, I am uh, overflowing with joy this morning. Uh, my heart, honestly, is just brimming over with uh, happiness just to be here. I've admired you from afar. As uh, Pastor Matt said, my, two of my kids uh, attend Ambleside, so I'm actually in the building quite often uh, and got to, gotten to know uh, Ethan and Matt and Steve and, and had some time of prayer and just realized uh, these are like-minded brothers and uh, it's just wonderful to be in a New Testament church. The singing, the love, the prayers, it's truly been uh, just a joy to be here with you and, and a privilege uh, to open up God's Word with you this morning. I was given some freedom as to what I could preach on, and I want us to look at this passage in 2 Peter chapter 1, because it highlights what I think is one of the most significant areas of false teaching that we see today, uh, really the, the attack on the sufficiency of Scripture. And I, I bring this message not because I think it's a particular need of Highlands Baptist, but because I view you as partners in defending and proclaiming the same gospel. There is a war on the scriptures today. And the Apostle Peter offers a healthy antidote. A few years ago, Fox News ran an article entitled, The State of the Bible. The article started off with these words, The good news about the good book is that it's still the number one seller of all time, with an estimated six billion copies sold. The not-so-good news, though, according to a new survey by the American Bible Society, is that it's lost a bit of its prominence in affecting people's lives. They interviewed the ABS, the American Bible Society, and their spokesman, Lamar Vest. He said, quote, one of the challenges the ABS is launching is encouraging people to read the Bible. The survey found that when asked about certain spiritual truths, nearly half, 46% of Americans couldn't differentiate between the teachings of the Bible, the Quran, and the Book of Mormon. Vest says, quote, there are probably five Bibles on every shelf in American homes. Americans buy the Bibles, they debate the Bible, they love the Bible, they just don't read the Bible. Today I am deeply concerned about the state of the Bible. And not so much just in the prominence in the eyes of the world, but in the Christian church. We need a revival of a high view of the Scriptures. Most theologians, if you open up a systematic theology, will categorize the doctrine of the Bible, the doctrine of Scripture, into four categories. I'll just briefly mention them. There's the authority of Scripture which is to read God's Word in such a way as to, uh, if you believe it or dis disbelieve it, you're believing or disbelieving God. Over and over again, you read, Thus saith the Lord. There is not just the authority of Scripture, but the clarity of Scripture. God has spoken to us in such a way that it's intelligible. We can understand it. Uh, it's it's uh, not esoteric or ambiguous, but it is a light. Scripture is a light. There's also the necessity of Scripture. Uh, what would we know about God if it weren't revealed in the Scriptures? Well, we would know quite a bit in, in nature, creation, but there's many things we wouldn't know. The Bible isn't necessary for knowing that God exists, but it is necessary to understand salvation and understand God's will. And then fourth, the sufficiency of Scripture. 
That's really my primary burden this morning. I quote here John MacArthur, who said, Of the four attributes of Scripture, sufficiency may be the one that evangelicals forget first. If authority is the liberal problem, clarity the postmodern problem, and necessity the problem for atheists and agnostics, then sufficiency is the attribute most quickly doubted by rank-and-file church-going Christians. So let's look at your Bibles again in verse 16, where really we see the sufficiency of Scripture. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this voice, very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter says he was an eyewitness to the glory of Jesus. This is an amazing statement. He's telling the the believers that he was an actual eyewitness of the glory of Christ. He's describing, of course, the transfiguration. Peter saw Jesus in his glory, and it was incredible. It was majestic. It was phenomenal. So Peter isn't saying he's propagating some kind of a clever myth. He's saying he's personally seen Christ in his glory. He was an eyewitness, and this is significant. He's saying he he knows this because he's personally seen his glory. Incredible. Imagine if you saw Christ in his glory. Talk about an amazing experience. And then Peter says he not only saw with his eyes the glory of God, he heard with his ears the voice of the Father saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Imagine this. Seriously. Try to imagine in your mind's eye seeing Christ in his glory, the way he's going to return to this earth and rule and reign, and also hearing the voice of the Father saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Phenomenal experience. Amazing. Incredible. To the point where Peter wants to set up a tent and spend some more time there. But then Peter says something almost unbelievable. He says something utterly astonishing. He says, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word. If you have the NASB, it says, we have the prophetic word made more sure, the NIV. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain. Did you catch that? The Word of God is is better and more sure than human testimonies. Again, imagine being an eyewitness to the glory of Christ. Imagine hearing the voice of the Father saying, This is my beloved Son. Then Peter points to the Scriptures and says, The prophetic Word is even better. It's even more trustworthy than Peter's eyewitness account. He's saying his own experience is subservient to God's Word. You know, there is a world of difference between the words of men and the words of God. This is one of the clearest statements of the sufficiency of Scripture. And I think it serves as a warning today. You go to any bookstore, Christian bookstore, and you will read all kinds of different books. 
But they are ultimately the words of men. The Bible is different. The Bible isn't just another book like other books. What Peter is saying in this statement is that the Scriptures are superior. They are sufficient, trustworthy. And this doctrine is under attack in all kinds of ways today. I, I gave this same warning uh, years ago to our own uh, assembly. Uh, warning of the subtle attacks on the sufficiency of Scripture. Let me just give you some examples of this. One is just further revelation. Uh, not too long ago, I was having lunch with someone and they asked me, what if an angel came and spoke some kind of new revelation to you? Would you listen? Uh, we were in kind of a, almost a heated debate. He was trying to make the case that Protestants, of which he would say he's a Protestant, are too relegated to the Scriptures, too confined to the Scriptures. And his point was that even if God had sent an angel, we wouldn't believe. He was trying to make the point I was too narrow and confined. And he was trying to argue that we need to accept extra revelation. But I told him that's exactly what happened with Joseph Smith, with Muhammad, and a host of other false prophets. I, I don't doubt their experience. An angel probably did come to them. But Paul says, even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. It's interesting when you watch TBN or, or charismatic television, people oftentimes are more excited about a word from God than the word of God. In fact, it seems today that People are excited about almost anything other than the Word of God. In fact, that seems to be the very thing that turns people off. Give them God's Word and they hate it. Give them a story of a vision you had and write a book on it and you'll sell millions. Extra revelation, I think, is just one example of a subtle undermining of the sufficiency of God's Word. And in the past few years, there has been a deluge of people writing books uh, on going, for instance, to heaven and coming back. They've dubbed this literature heaven tourism. By far the most popular of this genre is a book called Heaven is for Real. The movie version was re released a few years ago. There was another book that was and, and actually still is quite popular called The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, A Remarkable Account of Miracles, Angels, and Life Beyond This World. It was written by Kevin Malarkey which is kind of an ironic last name. You can't make this stuff up. It was another runaway bestseller. And his book was about his son, Alex, who at age six was nearly killed. He was left permanently paralyzed in a terrible car accident. But in the aftermath of his rehabilitation, Alex says he made multiple trips to heaven and back. Well, not long after the book was released, Alex Malarkey confessed he made the whole thing up. And he actually wrote a letter of confession. In fact, it's a very good letter. I want to read it uh, to publishers and booksellers who actually refused to pull it off the shelves even after, after they found out it was all a hoax. But he wrote this letter, an open letter, quote, to Lifeway, other sellers, buyers, marketers of heaven tourism by the boy who did not come back from heaven. And he writes this. He says, please forgive the brevity, but because of my limitations, I have to keep this short. I did not die. I did not go to heaven. I said I went to heaven because I thought it would get me attention. When I made the claims that I did, I'd never read the Bible. People have profited from lies and continue to. They should read the Bible, which is enough. The Bible is the only source of truth. Anything written by man cannot be infallible. 
It is only through repentance of your sins and a belief in Jesus as the Son of God who died for your sins, even though he committed none of his own, so that you can be forgiven. May you learn of heaven outside of what's written in the Bible, not by reading a work of man. Then he says this, I want the whole world to know that the Bible is sufficient. Those who market these materials must be called to repent and hold the Bible as enough. In Christ, Alex Malarkey. Now, again, it was only after a huge public outcry did publishers eventually take the book off the shelves. And here's the point in in sharing this. There's something inside us that isn't content with the scriptures alone. There is a temptation inside, I think even all of us, to get more excited about a vision of a young boy who says he went to heaven than about Christ or his word. And the Apostle Peter seems to understand that temptation and he warns against it. And here's how this happens. Generation one, here's uh, an account of a story like this or a vision and is amazed. Look, it really all corresponds with God's word. A lot of it matches. It must be from God. But now the doors open. Generation two receives another vision or word from God. It's pretty amazing. But now there's a number of things that are quite different. But people are accustomed to God speaking outside of the Bible, so they're not really alarmed. Generation 3 is open and willing to hear all kinds of extra revelation. They're used to it. The door is open. The sky's the limit for all kinds of deception. And someone might say, come on, Dave, that's not really happening. But I say it is happening all over the place at an alarming rate. And Peter not only avoids the slippery slope, he flat out rejects it, even his own testimony, and says, you have something more certain, more sure, the prophetic word. Now, is there anything wrong with wanting to learn about heaven? Of course not. Is it possible someone got a vision of heaven? Sure. But is it also possible, I wonder in my mind, is it also possible that the enemy could use a little kid's testimony to attract millions of readers and open them up to the possibility that God speaks outside the scriptures? And I would say absolutely. And that seems to be the kind of thing Peter wants people to avoid. Like Peter, we should be terrified that we might lead people away from God's word, which is more sure. Let me give you a third example. And it's the example of books that are written in the first person from God. Uh, I think of the number one Christian book for the past few years uh, is a book that is, does this very thing. Uh, there's a similar book in 1996 called Conversations with God. It was a bestseller, 2.5 million copies sold. And the author says that one day he simply started writing down his direct conversations with God. And the following conversations supposedly took place between Walsh, the author, and God. Let me just give you a little snippet. It says this. God says, I cannot tell you my truth until you stop telling me yours. Walsh says, but my truth about God comes from you. God supposedly says, who said so? Walsh said others. God says, what others? Walsh says, leaders, ministers, rabbis, priests, books, the Bible for heaven's sake. God says, those are not authoritative sources. Walsh says, they aren't. God says, no. Walsh says, then what is? And God supposedly says, listen to your feelings. Listen to your highest thoughts. Listen to your experience. Whenever any one of these differ from what you've been told by your teachers or read in your books, forget the words. Now, again, we might be thinking, that's crazy, but it's happening all the time today. Let me give you one last example. 
And it's the example of contemplative prayer, which begins with detachment. It essentially says you are to, quote, empty your mind in order to fill it, says Richard Foster. And usually what's meant is that you're to fill it with impressions or your intuition. But anytime visions or dreams or intuition or sixth sense usurps scripture, I think you have some kind of false teaching. And I wish I was making this stuff up, but this is coming from historically evangelical publishers and writers and colleges and seminaries and churches. And it's a denial of the sufficiency of Scripture. Let me give you one last example of really the opposite of this. And it comes from Martin Luther. And I know Luther had his issues, but he was right on here. He said, on Good Friday last, I was in my chamber in fervent prayer contemplating with myself how Christ, my Savior, on the cross suffered and died for our sins, there suddenly appeared upon the wall a bright vision of our Savior Christ with the five wounds steadfastly looking upon me as if, as if it had been Christ Himself in the flesh. At first sight, I thought I, it had been some celestial revelation, but I reflected that it must need be an illusion and juggling of the devil. For Christ appeared to us in His Word, and in a meaner and more humble form. Therefore, I spoke to the vision, avoid thee, confounded devil. I know no other Christ than He who is crucified, and who in His Word is pictured and presented unto me. Whereupon the image vanished, clearly showing of whom it came. Many people would have written a book about the experience, gone on a speaking tour, signed a movie deal. But Luther had the discernment to rebuke it, knowing what we know of Christ is in the Word. And that's sufficient. Here's the main point. Peter points people to the Scriptures. Because it's the more sure Word. And it's exactly what people need. The Word of God is exactly what we need. And it's living and active. Listen to what the Word of God does. I'm not going to give all the references for sake of time. But the Word of God prospers. The Word of God warns, it protects, it strengthens, it guides, it confronts, it sanctifies, it teaches, it corrects, it equips, it saves, it restores, it rewards, it counsels, it makes wise, it revives, it frees, it enriches, it rebukes, it instructs, it judges, and it nourishes. We need the Word. What a tragedy. It's a tragedy. How many churches, and I hear this time and time again, people go to church, the Word of God isn't opened up. It's not proclaimed. There's a famine in the land. And yet this is the very thing we all need. The Word of God. The meat of God's Word. Again, I want to quote John MacArthur here. He's right when he says, Scripture's inerrancy, authority, and inspiration mean little if we do not also believe in its sufficiency. When we do not believe in Scripture's sufficiency, we must substitute it with something. What we put in its place can never have the power and authority of the Bible. It can never be sufficient. Let me move on to the next point. We've looked at the sufficiency of Scripture, but Peter also mentions the clarity of Scripture. Look at verse 19 in your Bibles. To which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The word of God shines like a lamp, he says. In a dark place, 
The Word of God illuminates. It makes things clear. There's clarity. And clarity should be the mark of a church and a Bible preacher. A false teacher brings confusion. False teachers speak in ambiguities. You don't never really know what they're saying. This goes back to the garden, the serpent in the garden. The very first thing he does is bring confusion to God's word. God has spoken. It could not have been more clear and plain. And yet Satan comes along. He casts doubt on God's word. Suddenly there's ambiguity. There's confusion. There's ambivalence. There's doubt. There's uncertainty. Did God really say that? God won't judge you for this. He won't punish. His word isn't trustworthy. You can't really believe what he says. You know better than him. But the word of God, Peter says, is like a lamp shining in a dark place. It illuminates. Jesus, the incarnate word, came as the light of the world. The greatest need in the world today is spiritual light. And the way to get it is through the scriptures. Jesus says, John 12, 46, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. John three nineteen, And this is the judgment. The light is coming to the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. You know, Satan is referred to as the prince of darkness. He hates the word of God. In fact, I don't think it's an overstatement to say that a spiritual warfare takes place every time God's word is opened and proclaimed and read. Think of the parable of the soils. As the word of God, the seed is scattered, immediately who's there? The devil, Jesus says. The devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts. There is a cosmic battle going on even right now. And the exposition of the word of God is one of the major ways we combat the devil in his work. I honestly, sincerely, in my heart of hearts, believe that the greatest need in the church today is clear, courageous exposition of God's word. The exposing of it. The releasing it. Release it like a lion, Spurgeon said. And let it do its work. I think the highest priority of the believing church should be to heed the words of Peter in verse 19 when he says, You will do well to pay attention. That's true. All of us would do well to pay attention to God's word because the scriptures are like a lamp. They bring clarity amongst ambiguity. We've looked at the sufficiency of scripture. We've looked at the clarity of scripture. Let's also lastly look at the authority of scripture in verse 20. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what the apostle is saying here is that the word of God is in fact the word of God. It didn't originate with humans. It came by humans who were carried along by the Holy Spirit Scripture didn't originate from humans. It's breathed out by God. And this tells us a couple of things. It tells us that the Bible is fully God's word. It's authoritative. Uh, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, B.B. Warfield, was one of the great, finest theologians in American history. He worked at Princeton during the glory years before it became apostate. He did seminal work on the inerrancy of Scripture. In fact, really, his work was the foundation for the Chicago Statement of Inerrancy, which is a very, very 
good document. Let me just summarize the entire corpus of B.B. Warfield with a statement he made after years of study on the Scripture. And he said, consolidating the doctrine of the Scriptures, he said, the Bible speaks in such a way that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. The Bible speaks in such a way that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. In other words, our understanding when, they're, when we're reading the Word of God, when we're hearing the Word of God, is that this, in fact, is God's Word. It's authoritative. It comes from Him. Now, we don't worship the Bible. We worship the God of the Bible. But we honor the God of the Bible by honoring His Word. In fact, I dare you to have a higher view of Scripture than Jesus did. In his systematic theology, Wayne Grudem says this of God's Word. Ultimately, we believe the Bible because we believe in the power and wisdom and goodness and truthfulness of the God whose authority and veracity cannot be separated from the Bible. We trust the Bible because it's God's Bible. And God being God, we have every reason to take Him at His Word. To disobey or disbelieve Scripture is to disobey and disbelieve God. And if you look at church history, the history of the church can be traced along the lines of how people have viewed Scripture. From the Reformation to the Baptistic movement, individuals and churches that have made a God-glorifying, lasting significance in the world have been people who've had a high view of Scripture. And at the same time, the opposite is true. Death and decay have come to individuals and churches and seminaries that have elevated man's word over God's word. When the authority shifts from God's opinion to man's opinion. As Charles Spurgeon said, men do not reject the Bible because it contradicts itself, but because it contradicts them. I have a story that you may have heard before. It's a fascinating story to me about a man named Charles Templeton. Some of you may remember that name. He was one of the founders of Youth for Christ, along with Billy Graham. He first professed faith in 1936. He became an evangelist that year. In 1945, he met Billy Graham. The two became friends, rooming and ministering together during the 1946 Youth for Christ evangelistic tour in Europe. Most people actually thought that Charles was really the better of the two preachers. He had a great mind. He was a good orator. And Billy and Charles preached all over the place. They preached to stadiums full of people. Templeton especially was highly admired. He was really targeted for massive success. But something began to happen. Little by little, it would come out that Templeton really had a low view of the Scriptures. Little by little, it came out what he actually believed about the Word of God. And it all came to a head when he finally wrote a book, really his biography, his spiritual journey. And the title of it was called Farewell to God. Fifty years later, Lee Strobel had an opportunity to interview Templeton, who just had a few more years to live. He was in his 80s, suffering from Alzheimer's, but still a clear conversational partner. In his book, Case for Faith, Strobel tells about their conversation. Strobel says, and how do you assess this Jesus? 
seemed like the next logical question, but I wasn't ready for the response it would evoke. Templeton's body language softened. It was as if he suddenly felt relaxed and comfortable in talking about an old and dear friend. His voice, which at times had displayed such sharp and insistent edge, now took on a melancholy and reflective tone. His guard seemingly down, he spoke in an unhurried pace, almost nostalgically, carefully choosing his words as he talked about Jesus. He was, Templeton began, the greatest human being who's ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was the intrinsically wisest person I've ever encountered in my life or in my readings. His commitment was total and led to his own death, much to the detriment of the world. What could one say about him except that this was a form of greatness? I was taken aback, Strobel says. You sound like you really care about him. Well, yes, he's the most important thing in my life, came his reply. I... I, he stuttered, searching for the right word. I know it may sound strange, but I have to say I adore him. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. Yes, yes, and tough. Just look at him. He castigated people. He was angry. People don't think of him that way, but they don't read the Bible. He had a righteous anger. He cared for the oppressed and exploited there's no question that he had the highest moral standard, the least duplicity, the greatest compassion of any human being in history. There have been many other wonderful people, but Jesus is... Jesus, oh. But no, he said, he paused. He's the most... He stopped, started again. In my view, he declared he's the most important human being who's ever existed. That's when Templeton uttered the words, I never expected to hear from him. Strobel says. And if I may put it this way, he said, and his voice began to crack. I miss him. And with that, tears flooded his eyes. He turned his head and looked downward, raising his left hand to shield his face from me. His shoulders bobbed as he wept. Templeton fought to compose himself. I could tell it wasn't like him to lose control in front of a stranger. He sighed deeply, wiped away a tear. And after a few more awkward moments, he waved his hand dismissively. Finally, quietly but adamantly, he insisted, enough of that. Wow. And he wrote a book entitled Farewell to God. And I ask myself the question, how does that happen? It all started with a denial of the Word of God. When you deny the Word of the Lord, you deny the Lord of the Word. J.I. Packer in his little book on the Word of God said this, Certainty about the great issues of Christian faith and conduct is lacking along the line. The outside observer sees us as staggering on from gimmick to gimmick and stunt to stunt like many drunks in a fog, not knowing at all where we are or which way we should be going. Preaching is hazy, heads are muddled, hearts fret, doubts drain strength, uncertainty paralyzes action. 
Unlike the first century Christians who in three centuries won the Roman world and those later Christians who pioneered the Reformation and the Puritan Awakening and the Evangelical Revival and the great missionary movement of the last century, we lack certainty. But Peter says something so precious to me. Even after seeing Jesus in His glory and hearing the voice of the Father in a pastoral moment, which would be echoed through the corridors of church history, he says, you have something even more certain. And it's the Word of God. It's impossible, it is impossible to overstate how important your view of the Bible is. Low views of Scripture lead to monstrous Sins. And today, as you know, we're living in an age, a tsunami of secularism. Tidal waves are crashing against the doors of the church of homosexuality, feminism, pluralism. And preaching really loses its thus saith the Lord and becomes a conversation in many churches. Theology becomes ambiguous and unclear and lacks certainty. Many people embarrassed by the Bible But today is a call to imitate Peter and imitate our Lord who had a high view of the scriptures. So let's not be ashamed of the gospel. Let's not be ashamed of the word of God. Bring on the sufficiency of scripture. Bring on the clarity of scripture. Bring on the authority of scripture. I dare us to have a higher view of Scripture than Jesus and His apostles did. He spoke with utter confidence of the Scriptures. And I obviously don't know many of you here, but especially if you're visiting here and you don't know what the Gospel is, let me say with utter certainty, the worst of sinners can be saved. This is what God's Word says. Whosoever wills can come to Him and find everlasting life. If you acknowledge and confess your sins, you can be saved, given eternal life, forgiven of all your sins, all of your wicked deeds and unrighteousness heaped upon the head of Christ and all of his righteousness given to you, placed upon you as a gift, holy and blameless in God's sight. Friends, this is good news for the unbeliever. This is good news for the believer. And there's no ambiguity about it. It is utterly clear, crystal clear in God's Word. You can be saved and have eternal life in Christ Jesus. So call upon His name. Look to Him. And believer, if you've heard this a thousand times, rejoice in the Gospel. Rejoice in God's Word. It's for you and it's a meal for you week after week. So celebrate and thank the Lord for the Gospel. And for Peter's words that we have a more sure Word, more certain word, the prophetic word. How firm is our foundation? Amen? We have a firm foundation in God's word. Let me pray for us.